0: The scripture reading today is 2 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 7. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar.
1: kindness is a funny thing when we find ourselves at a place of desperation where we're at the end of our finances or we're in a situation where there's no one around to help us and we have no idea what to do our phone has no signal we desire that kindness we 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 need that kindness and when someone comes along and rescues us i am so thankful for that person's kindness But even then, sometimes we can twist it just a little bit. We can get to the place where I'm in a hard situation. I deserve this kindness. People people owe it to me. They should see me in my plight and step up and take care of me. Kindness is a funny thing. And the other funny thing about it is when we are in a position of prosperity, when things are going well, Kindness is kind of unwelcome, right? We, we, we say, man, that's so kind of you, but it's, it's not necessary. Sometimes we might even take offense at it. The, the fact that they offered this, are, are they implying that I can't take care of this on my own? Are, are they suggesting that I'm unable to do it? I've got this. Kindness is a funny thing. We respond to it strangely, and this morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 9 and chapter 10, and we're going to see a picture of how two different people respond to kindness. Uh, we're going to start by looking at a promise that David made, so this is going to be a little bit of review. I think any good teaching experience should have at least 40 to 50 minutes of review. So we're going to review the promise And then we're going to see an example of really shocking kindness when we consider the context. And then we're going to look at a picture of someone who mocks that kindness. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And what we just had Becky read for us, David thought to himself, Is there anyone still remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now, let's ground this for a second. David has been the king for about 10 years now. So is there anyone still remaining? It's been a while since any of the Saulites were around. But he's saying to show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. And that word, kindness. You know, you've heard this word before in the Hebrew. It's one of the Hebrew words that preachers like to throw out there. It's one of the chesed. We, we like it because we get to go yeah. the chesed of God. It's the loving kindness of God. It's the, the overwhelming, makes no logical sense to us, beauty of God's favor to us. This, this picture of God's love. And that's the word that David's using here. Is there anyone left from Saul's line, Jonathan's line, that I can show kindness to? And so this should remind us of those promises. So if we go to, you don't have to go there, but 1 Samuel 24, this is after the second time David spared Saul's life. Remember, David was on the run, Saul was wanting to kill David, and David had a couple of opportunities to take Saul out, but he chose not to because I'm not going to lay my hands on the Lord's anointed. This is, that would be wrong. So he preserves Saul's life, and they have a conversation. And then Saul says this to David. Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. So in the midst of this nasty dispute, is really too small of a word, Saul was like, you're going to be king. Promise me this. Okay, promises? Promises good? Okay, you go back to your stronghold. I'm going to keep trying to kill you. Right? It's just an interesting season. Now we go back to 1 Samuel 20. We know about David's relationship with Jonathan that close bond, that friendship. Jonathan says to David, if I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord, but if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. So now we have it from Saul, and now we have it from Jonathan. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So we have this picture now. David made these two promises to these two men, and they were significant promises. And and the language of enemy, even when David's enemies are wiped from the earth, promise me, swear before God, you will not end my line. That's a big statement because Saul's line is, by definition, the enemies of David. This is the context we're going into when David has this thought. So he summons this servant of Saul's family named Ziba. And he asks him, so are, are you Ziba? He says, I am your servant. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? So now he's qualifying it, this, this chesed, this kindness. It's the kindness of God that David is going to show. And Ziba said to the king, well, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both of his feet. So David made these promises. He was faithful to them. When we read the texts of First and 2 Samuel up to this point, David was not responsible for the death of a single one of Saul's family. He honored his promise. And now he finds out from Ziba, there's, there is one. This this young person who is crippled in both of his feet. And if you go back to 2 Sam, uh, Samuel Chapter 4, you get the story of what happened. Uh, at the, the bad news of the death of, of Saul and Jonathan, uh, a woman was running with this child, and dropped him. He was about five years old at this point. Dropped him, and we don't know exactly what happened, but his ankles, his feet, he became disabled an invalid. He was unable to take care of himself from that point forward. And his name, Mephibosheth, I did it. His name, Mephibosheth, it means one who scatters shame. Because to be crippled in this context, to be disabled in the ancient Near East, was a shameful thing. It was shameful for the family. Uh, the family would want to distance themselves from you. I'm trying to think of a parallel. Well, I'm trying to think. I thought of, and I'm going to share it with you. Uh, I tried to think of a parallel for the royal family for us here in the United States. And if you are familiar with history, you know that we as a country have not um, dealt well with kings. We've historically had problems with them. But we've had our royal families. And one that comes to mind is the Kennedys. And the Kennedys, we have JFK and his brothers and his sister, Rosemary. Now, how many of you, just curious, how many of you are familiar with Rosemary and her story? A handful. Right. So this is, this is President Kennedy's sister. Uh, she was a beautiful young woman with a fiery and explosive temper. And she got into quite a bit of trouble in her early years. And the dad, Joseph Kay, the mom, Rose Fitzgerald, she's named after her mom, Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy, they're trying to figure out what can we do about Rosemary. And after her seizures and anger and acting out started to become violent, they decided to take an extreme step. And when she was 23 years old, they took her to a specialist and they performed a specialized frontal lobotomy. And the way they did this lobotomy, from, from what I understand, the surgeon was working with the knife, doing the removal of that portion of the frontal lobe, and asking her questions. So she's awake and aware as this is going on, and asking her to sing songs that she would know, and to recite things that she would know. And he kept going until she could no longer answer the questions with any sense. The surgery went horribly wrong, and Rosemary was uh, found to have the intellectual capacity after this frontal lobotomy of a two-year-old. So they sent her away. But now get this. They sent her away to a home where she could be cared for, but didn't tell anyone what they had done or what happened to Rosemary, including her brother's. They didn't know. They just thought, "Well, Rosemary, my parents told me I'm President Kennedy. My parents told me, uh, no, uh, that she was a recluse, that she just was withdrawing from society." They they didn't tell him the truth, and so she was completely buried and hidden away. The father, Joseph K. Joseph K. never visited her. The mother didn't visit her for twenty years. It wasn't until President Kennedy was elected that the news came out that they revealed that this is what happened and she is uh, in this place being cared for. But I'm telling this story because it's a sad, tragic story of what a family did to avoid shame. Because the dad did not want to do anything or have anything that would get in the way of his son's political aspirations. So he buried Rosemary away because she was an object of shame. And that's what we have here with Mephibosheth. His name wasn't really Mephibosheth, he who scatters shame. Talk about parents not being kind to their children. Uh, His name was Merev Baal, uh, which they didn't like that name because Baal, so they changed it to shame. But moving on from all of that, he was a shameful legacy, and so he wasn't known about. So the king asked, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Makir. So Lodabar had been set up as a house of refuge. And there, the house of Makir, they believed that this family were Saul sympathizers. So they were taking care of Melchizedek and taking care of him, protecting him, keeping him safe from any potential persecution. And also taking care of someone who needed to be taken care of. So there he is in a house of refuge, having his needs met, being safe. And King David had him brought from that house in Lodabar to David. We see in verse 9, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down and paid homage. Ziba didn't do this. Ziba was just like, I am your servant. It doesn't say anything about him going prostrate before the king. It doesn't say anything about him uh, paying homage, just talking to the king. Where Mephizabesh, see now there it is, Uh, he fell before and he's lame. He did something that would be difficult for us to do with our knees and our ankles and he laid himself before the king. Talk about Terror. This disabled young man depended upon the kindness of others to care for him. And he was taken away from his caretaker, sent all the way from Lodabar to Jerusalem, and brought before the very king who was his grandfather's most bitter enemy. I imagine that when he hit the ground in his head, he thought, and I will never stand up again. Because what does a victorious king do when he finds somebody that's in the lineage of the previous king? You eliminate the competition. You get rid of them. But he falls. I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David says to him. We hear don't be afraid a lot in Scripture, usually in context where the people have every reason to be afraid. But then words of great comfort are going to be coming. Don't be afraid, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Get the for the sake of. Not because of him. He he, he had nothing to do with the kindness that he was about to experience. The kindness he was about to experience, he was going to experience for the sake of the promises he had made to his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul. I will restore you to all your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table. This is the shocking kindness. What would be kindness would be, come before me. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to let you live. Despite the fact you would have a claim to my throne, I spare you. That would be kindness. But he didn't just do that. He spared his life and then said, You know, uh, the, the lands, the, the fields that would be yours if Saul were still king, I'm restoring those to you. Those are going to be yours. Those are going to be worked. You're not capable of working them because you're disabled. You wouldn't be able to do it. But I'm going to make sure, and we're going to see in a moment how it's done, that these lands are worked so you are provided for all of your needs. Now now the kindness is getting pretty incredible, but then the next line, and you will always eat meals at my table. (laughs) To, To be invited to eat with the king, to sit at his table, would be an incredible honor. Just once, it would be something you would tell your kids about and your grandkids about for the rest of your life there was a time when I was at the king's table. He invited me. Always. Always. He has a permanent seat at the king's table. This makes no sense. He would have a claim to David's throne. Now, some would say, well, he wasn't... The danger of not being on the platform. Some would say that, that what David was doing here was just being smart. Because Mephibosheth would have a claim to the throne, he's keeping him close. He's keeping him close so that he can keep an eye on him. And you know what? Maybe that's a piece of this. But all of the other pieces that are built in, he didn't need to do any of those things. This is a shocking, overwhelming kindness that he's showing. And Mephibosheth, has, as I said, had nothing to do with this kindness. It's not dependent upon him in any way. It's dependent on David and David's covenant promises. And David here is being a good example. He's demonstrating what faithfulness is. We keep reading. Then the king summoned... Oh, no, there's a a great line that I'm missing here. Verse 8. Mephibosheth paid homage and said... What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? This should ring a small bell in your memory. David, when he was coming up to King Saul, after he cut the robe of King Saul in the cave, he came up and talked to Saul, and Saul gave him some favor, and he said, why are you doing this? Why are you chasing after someone like me? Why are you chasing after a dead dog like me, David says of himself. I am nothing. Why are you chasing after me? And now we see that language echoed in Saul's grandson. Then the king summoned Saul's attendant, Ziba, and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him. And you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziva had 15 sons and 20 servants. I don't think anything in the text of Scripture is accidental. And and, and rarely is it even incidental. There's something to be learned here. Ziba had all these sons and all of these servants and he himself was a servant of King Saul. This is a pretty successful servant. But wait, he was a servant. He was an aide to Saul. 10 years at least has gone by since Saul's kingdom fell in David's ascendancy. So what has Ziba been doing? Well, continuing to prosper. That's for sure. But something he wasn't doing was taking care of Saul's grandson. The one who would be in the line to the throne. The one where his loyalty should lay, should be with this man. And he's like, oh, oh yeah, there's a guy in Lodabar that's in the answer. So this Ziba, uh, no loyalty once Saul's kingdom fell. He seems to maybe be a bit of an opportunist and If you continue reading in 2 Samuel, and I encourage you to do so, even after our series is over, uh, you'll see some pretty sketchy behavior coming out of Ziva later in the narrative. Uh, We are right to be a little suspicious of his character. But here, Ziva says to the king, your servant will do all my lord and king commands. He's going to do his job, and he does so. All right. So here we have a picture of shocking kindness. Kindness and Mephibosheth receives it, and his life is forever changed. I want to jump, just for a minute, to chapter 10. And this is important for us to look at, because in chapter 10, we have the setup for next week, when we're looking at the story of David and Bathsheba. To have this context, we need to understand what happens in 10. But I want you to notice the parallel between the beginning of chapter 9, is there anyone left in Saul's line to whom I can show kindness and how chapter 10 begins sometime later the king of the Ammonites died and his son Hanun became king in his place then David said I will show kindness same word to Hanun son of Nahash just as his father showed kindness to me what was that kindness we don't know the text doesn't tell us Uh, maybe when David was on the run the Ammonites provided him with safe shelter That may have been the kindness. We don't know. So David sent his emissaries to console Hanun concerning his father. However, when they arrived in the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite leaders said to Hanun, their lord, just because David sent men with condolences for you, do you really believe that he is showing respect for your father? Instead, hasn't David sent his emissaries to spy on the land and demolish it. So Hanun took David's emissaries, shaved off half their beards, cut their clothes in half at the hips, and sent them away. That's odd. (laughs) I was thinking this morning as a sermon illustration, uh, preaching facing just this way, and then at this point in the narrative, turning around and just having half of my beard shaved off so that you could see. Uh, but then I think, thankfully, I chose not to do that. Half of the beard, why, why would they do that? Well, a beard in this context is a, is a sign of virility. And so he's saying, you aren't men. And, and by doing it half, it's highlighting the ridiculousness, the mocking that the king is doing to these emissaries of David. And then he cuts their clothes, and the word that's used for clothes is not the standard word for clothes, it's official garments. So they came dressed as emissaries of the king. And this guy cuts half of their clothes off at the hip. So, at the risk of being too detailed, they're exposing one buttock, which would have been shameful. Shameful. Ridiculous and shameful. So, King David is showing kindness, kindness that he doesn't need to show to another king, a, a, a king that's not in direct opposition to him, but is not exactly on the friendliest of terms. And the king demeans, ridicules, and mocks the emissaries. When this was reported to David, he sent someone to meet them, since they were deeply humiliated to say the least the king said stay in jericho until your beards grow back then return i see this as another picture of kindness (laughs) these men were david's men and if there's something that we've learned from the text so far david's men were mighty men of mighty deeds the gibberim these were powerful soldiers and they let this happen to him? To happen to them? I could see how the king would rightfully say, you have disgraced me by allowing this to happen to you and exercise punishment upon them. <laughs> but that's not what he did. He said, chill out at Jericho. Let your beards grow back. I'm going to get you some new clothes so you can come back without being ashamed and embarrassed all the way. So, when the Ammonites realized they had become repulsive to David. They didn't expect this. They hired 20,000 foot soldiers from the Arameans of beth and Zova, 1,000 men from the king of Mahah, and 12,000 men from Tob. David heard about it and sent Joab and all of the elite troops. The war is beginning. And this war is the context in which we find ourselves when we go to David and Bathsheba next week. But here, in these two chapters, they're together. They're giving us an example of David's kindness being received and David's kindness being rejected. And normally, when when I look at this text, I'm identifying with David. I'm thinking, okay, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to show shocking kindness to others? How can I be the kind of man who is willing to do that which doesn't make sense for the better of someone else. That's what's going through my head. But I suspect that maybe we're not supposed to identify so much with King David here as we are supposed to identify with methabesheth He was in desperate need of kindness. He had done nothing to merit Kindness. The kindness that David was showing him had nothing to do with him and everything to do with his covenant with his father and his grandfather. Every single one of us is in desperate need of the kindness of God that is given to us despite what we have done and the choices we have made and the things we have said. We we need this kindness, this grace. And I have... Two applications. I'm going to give you a quick short one right now. When I think of how can we rightly respond to the kindness of God, I think we need to pull it back a little bit and say, well, how do I respond to the kindness of others? Whether it's a kindness that I recognize I desperately need, being rescued from the side of the road during a rainstorm, or a kindness that something in me is kind of pridefully rearing up, going, I don't need you to do this for me. If someone's offering you a kindness, receive it, and receive it gracefully. And so I encourage you to become men and women who have an eye for things that are being done that are kindnesses to you, things that you don't necessarily deserve, but they're doing it anyway. And whether you keep a, a gratitude journal or you have cards that you write these things down on and put into a drawer that you pull out and... Refresh your memory at times of discouragement of how many times God has shown you his kindness through the lives of others. Remember the kindness of others. Don't reject it. But here's the bigger thing. How will you today respond to the shocking kindness of God? In a moment, we're going to come down to this table. We're going to remember what God has done for us through his Son. We're going to remember that we who had no life and no hope were given life and eternal hope because of the work of the Son. Not because we merited it, but because God merited it to us. What an incredible, shocking kindness. And as I look around the room, I suspect there are three different types of people in the room this morning. There are those who have received the shocking kindness of God and rest in the beauty of the promises. That God has given knowing there was nothing we could do but God has done it for us and to those when you come to the table I ask that you would celebrate the shocking kindness of God as we remember what the son has done and then there's others of us who yes we have we've received that kindness we have been saved by grace through faith we believe in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done But you know what? Sometimes it feels as though God is anything but kind. And right now in this season of life, I have a hard time thinking that this God that you're telling me is a God of shocking kindness even cares because things are hard. And I come to this table with my heart hardened and I'm not thinking about the kindness of God. I'm thinking about the why aren't you doing this for me, God? I want you to take some encouragement through the brokenness of David. We read in the Psalms that there were days, there were weeks, there were months, where that was his heart. And he was yelling at God. And if you think, well, he shouldn't have done that. Well, it's in the scriptures, inspired by God himself, as a lesson for us. So if that's you, if you are struggling with the kindness of God, you, you, you believe But man, help my unbelief. I invite you to come to the table this morning and recognize that God is kind even when it seems like he is not. God is good even when it seems like he is not. God is present and sustaining and guiding even when it seems like he is absent and distant. Friends, I can assure you that this meal that we remember is a picture of the presence of God every moment of our lives, sustaining us, feeding us, guiding us. And then the third group, maybe you're hearing me talk about this shocking kindness of God, and it sounds great on paper, but this is not something that you have ever experienced, that you've ever believed, that you've ever committed by faith to be true. Well, this table is for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the one who is fully God and fully man, who gave himself as a sacrifice so that we might have life, that shocking kindness. If that's you this morning, I pray that you'll pray with me in just a moment and that you will receive by faith the truth of who Jesus is, that you will take that step. I can't prove it to you. No one can be careful of someone who tells you they can prove it to you. But I can assure you, with all the confidence that I have been given, that this is true. It's changed my life and it's changed the lives of so many men and women in this room. So after the service today, if you have questions about this, come talk to me. Come talk to Mike. Come talk to Mike. Either of the mics would be great. Find one of the elders. We would love to talk to you with no pressure, but just to share with you the beauty of what this symbolizes. So as we prepare later on in the service to come to the table, let's pray now and reflect on the shocking kindness of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning humbled that you would desire to be in a relationship to save dogs such as us. We thank you for the shocking kindness that while we were still sinners, you provided a way to restore a relationship between us and you. We thank you for the precious gift of the Son. He who modeled perfectly what it is to be a man after your heart. Where David and every other human in history has failed, Jesus succeeded. And he succeeded not by strength of will, but because he is fully God, as well as being fully man. So we worship you, our God who is under no obligation to save a single one of us, who, for reasons beyond our understanding, has shown us the shocking kindness of a restored relationship with you. But not only have you restored the relationship with you, you have invited us to dine at your table forever. We worship you by the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son. Amen.